It's December 1st, 2019, and this is episode 419 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm joined by Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And special guest, Charlie Lee. Hey, guys. Charlie is the creator of Litecoin, an early employee at Coinbase, a managing director of the Litecoin Foundation, a founding member of the Magical Crypto Friends, and for our longtime listeners, all of this was totally unnecessary as he really needs no introduction. Charlie, thank you very much for joining today's discussion. Sure, I'm happy to be here. A big thanks to our sponsors, Purse.io, Edge.app, Brave.com, and eToro.com. And just a heads up, you can now find Let's Talk Bitcoin discussions featured on Coindesk.com every Sunday morning as well as the channels and RSS feeds you're used to. But whether this is your first episode or you've been listening since the days of empty gox, welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. Charlie, before we really get into it, I kind of want to start with Litecoin. You weren't the first to create an altcoin, but you were very, very early. And with the exception of Ripple and XRP, which I sort of don't count as a blockchain, today it's the largest, earliest token besides Bitcoin. Early on, I remember hearing that Litecoin is the silver to Bitcoin's gold, It's basically an experimental lab for innovations that might one day end up being adopted with Bitcoin. Getting to the question, in today's sort of marketplace, in today's world, what's the reason behind Litecoin? Multiple reasons. It's really a good coin for for payments. So with shorter block times and cheaper fees, it's quite good for payments and people use it quite a bit. And like you said, it's also good for testing new stuff. So Litecoin's market cap is a lot smaller than Bitcoin's. So we can take a little bit more risks and do stuff that potentially Bitcoin would be too conservative to do. What do you think is the most exciting or most important thing that Litecoin has contributed? A couple of years ago, I think Litecoin helped Bitcoin a lot with SegWit adoption. Back then, I don't know if you guys remember, SegWit was really controversial. Miners were against it. Users wanted it. So it was kind of in a deadlock and there's a lot of fun around it about how if SegWit was adopted in Bitcoin, it would get hacked and miners can steal all the coins. When Litecoin activated SegWit, it actually just cleared away all the FUD and proved that it actually is safe to launch on Bitcoin because there were millions of dollars on Litecoin using SegWit and no one's able to hack it. So all this fake news about SegWit being unsafe is all just FUD. While there's been lots of excitement around other tokens, Bitcoin has a unique advantage in that it was so early in the life cycle of all of this. It was the first for a lot of these things. There's some game theory going on there, right? Where it's like, if you have to pick one, then there's some gravity towards the oldest one, towards the largest one. And I think that we've seen that in practice. How much do you think that Litecoin benefits from being early? And do you think that that's playing a larger role as time goes on? These network protocols, uh, currency, they have network effect. So if everyone's using it, then you want to be using the one with the most liquidity, the one that's on all the exchanges that you can easily switch back and forth between fiat and cryptocurrency. So Litecoin benefits from that because, for example, the Chinese exchanges all added Litecoin as a second cryptocurrency. And Litecoin now is on pretty much every single exchange. So it's very easy for anyone anywhere to move their money to Litecoin and also obviously Bitcoin. Right? So that helps a lot for onboarding new users. And that definitely has network effect. Once you're supported by all the exchanges, for example, two-thirds of the Bitcoin ATMs support Litecoin because it's easy to implement and it's supported everywhere. One of the magical things about Litecoin is that it's almost like an identical twin 
of Bitcoin. It's a UTXO-based transactional system that has 99.5% of the same DNA as Bitcoin. So I don't want to use a biology example where one of the two coins is a monkey, so I'll just make both of them monkeys. (laughs) (laughs) Chimpanzees and bonobos. Yeah, exactly. If Bitcoin's a chimpanzee, then Litecoin's a bonobo. They share so much of the DNA that to a developer who's coming to this, all of the libraries are compatible. All of the basic data structures are the same. And one of the remarkable things that I think Litecoin has achieved, which is not easy, is to remain almost in lockstep in terms of maintenance with every single development in the core protocol of Bitcoin, except for SegWit which Litecoin managed to proceed by several months. But in every other respect, if Bitcoin has it, Litecoin has it almost instantly. And that means for a developer, it's an environment in which you can test with real money and actually have many of the benefits of a low-risk, high-velocity environment without having to deal with Bitcoin's conservative development model. The thing people don't realize, like you mentioned, it's better than testnet. So when SegWit was first implemented on Bitcoin, people were saying it works. It's been launched on testnet for a few months and there's no problems with it. But the problem with that concept is that testnet doesn't have real value on it. The reason why Bitcoin works is because of the game theory aspect of it. You can't really test the game theory aspect of SegWit on testnet, whereas on Litecoin you actually can because there's actual value that people potentially can steal if there's a huge bug with SegWit. This kind of testing can only be done when there's actually value. I think that's really cool about Litecoin. We can do this kind of testing with real value. We try to keep Litecoin close to Bitcoin on purpose. We want to make sure that it's fully compatible. It's very easy for any exchanges or wallets or merchants to add Litecoin support because they already support Bitcoin. It's just a few changes. And that's really important, I think. Charlie, I'm zooming out a little bit from the programming aspects. One of the biggest differences I see between Litecoin and Bitcoin, you are Satoshi Light. This is your Twitter handle. You have been publicly claiming credit for creating Litecoin from the beginning. What has that been like? I'm just curious from a human perspective. Definitely a lot of attention. The only reason why people like to talk to me is because they can't find Satoshi. Yeah, do you get the hate mail and the fan mail that some of it should be really directed at Satoshi, but people can't find Satoshi? (laughs) A little bit of that. I get extreme love and also extreme hate. It's kind of an interesting position to be in. It also depends on what the price is at that day. That's one thing that Litecoin is very different from Bitcoin. Bitcoin's founder is anonymous. He's no longer part of the team, which is a good thing. And Litecoin is a bit different. It's more centralized because I'm still around. There's good and bad for that. The good part is that I can shape Litecoin to my vision. Whereas with Bitcoin, you have groups claiming this is Satoshi's vision and other groups claiming, no, this other thing is Satoshi's vision. It becomes kind of like a religious argument. With Litecoin, we can be more efficient and move faster because I'm still around. I feel like you've been through a blockchain founder circle of life, the happy path. You started the Litecoin protocol, you built and supported the protocol, especially in the earliest days, and you collected a lot of tokens for your effort. I assume you collected tokens at other times too. When the opportunity arose, you converted your early efforts into real money that wasn't dependent on the price of Litecoin. Even though you're a little bit less connected to Litecoin in terms of influencing your fortune, it seems like you've used that as a way to enhance your efforts and to continue this project going when otherwise perhaps it wouldn't have the funding to keep going on its own. But I don't see very many people out there who started blockchains who have had that experience. 
I'm curious for what that's been like, if that's something you can share. All the Litecoins I had were mined and bought by myself, just like anyone else. Unlike most of these ICO projects where they print out a lot of coins that they sold initially, Litecoins is very different, similar to Bitcoin, where it was launched fairly. The creator or early people just had to mine or buy them. One thing that is different for Litecoin is that we actually don't have a lot of money. The Litecoin Foundation is a pretty lean organization run off of donations and merchandise sales, putting all that money back into the ecosystem. Some coins raise ICOs of hundreds of millions of dollars. They're spending that on like marketing and everything. And we don't have that. I've made some money from Litecoin. But in reality, I'm an early Bitcoin adopter. My Litecoin wealth is maybe only 10% of my total wealth. They didn't really move the needle for me. The reason why I actually sold my coins is basically what I said. I felt like there was a misalignment of interests where I don't want to be worried about the price. A lot of times, what's good for Litecoin may not be good for the price, at least in the short term. I don't want to do anything that pumps the price just for my own financial benefit that actually hurts Litecoin in the long run. I wanted to separate that, and that's why I decided to sell my Litecoins, which wasn't a lot. They didn't really move the market. And Litecoin and everything else crashed from then. There's no way for me to predict that back then. It seems like you were able to do Litecoin and you were able to leverage that into something that allows you to now continue to do Litecoin. That was my perception from the outside coming in. But you're saying that actually the vast majority of that financial freedom that you have in order to be able to fund this effort and continue going actually didn't come from Litecoin or Litecoin price at all. And it had to do with your early adoption on the Bitcoin side. That too. And also financially, I'm doing well, good enough that I can basically work full time on Litecoin and not getting paid a penny. And also put my own money into it, which is great for Litecoin. And also don't forget, I was an extremely early employee of Coinbase, and Coinbase is worth $8 billion now. On the subject of Coinbase, I hadn't actually heard the term before a couple of days ago, but I was talking to somebody, and they were talking about the Coinbase Mafia. This is in respect to a term called the PayPal Mafia. It sounds like it's a bad thing, but it's just the fact that many of the early employees of PayPal, before they were acquired by eBay, 30 out of the 42 of them would go on to create some of the largest and most impactful startups in the post.com bust world. While our movement is kind of nominally about technology, actually the relationship part of it is becoming more and more important. As somebody who was an early employee of Coinbase, I'm curious how much you think the relationship side of this plays and how you think those relationships will evolve as time goes on. I'm actually not sure how much of the relationship side of things play in this. I think a lot of the early Coinbase people are people who are passionate about Bitcoin, who are really smart. We hired the best of the best, and I think that helps. The pool of people that worked at Coinbase were the brightest people in this industry and also the most passionate. I think after leaving Coinbase, they went out and created various different things. A lot of successful stuff, too. Back in the day, this community was very, very tight-knit, and everybody knew everybody. I remember when I lived in San Francisco, I got the call from someone telling me that Gox is about to blow up. Six hours from now, they're going to come out and they're going to announce that they have no money. And I'm like, oh, shit, this is going to hurt. <laughs> it was the first time I actually worried that this could take down Bitcoin. People today would think that's not the case. But back then, it really represented 90% of the volume, and especially internationally, and all of the early investments and all of the APIs came out of that. I remember hearing about this, I think it was the very next day, 
people were talking about how this might affect credibility in all of the exchanges in the space. A bunch of us were in various forms discussing how we can help each other as an industry. At the time, I was working for Blockchain Info. There was a brief period of time where I actually had a job as a part-time chief security officer. Blockchain Info and Coinbase and Bitstamp and Kraken were all talking about what kind of impact this could have in the industry. I suggested, well, why don't we help by looking at each other's financial reserves? If a competitor looks at someone's financial reserves, then that will have more credibility in the industry. I kind of volunteered myself to do a spot check on Coinbase's reserves. And it was kind of a silly idea that happened in a matter of hours. I called Fred and Brian at the time. They said, sure, let's do it. And literally two hours later, I was at Coinbase offices in San Francisco. Fred and Brian and yourself and two other people, we sat around the table and you guys ran through a cold storage recovery with me asking pointed questions to make sure you weren't trying to fool me with fake reserves until I was satisfied that Coinbase actually had the money it was supposed to have. I made you jump through hoops and I wrote a little uh, article about it. I think that was one of the last times that we met in person. One of the good moments in our industry where competitors, but also friends and people who are part of this community came together to help build some trust and take things forward. What I remember is when Mt. Gox announced that they're bankrupt, they don't have the Bitcoins, the whole community was going all crazy. People were questioning whether this is also the case with Coinbase. So having you come to us and do a spot check, I think really helped calm the community down. But obviously you couldn't really check everything. We showed you all the coins that we have and all the addresses that they're in. You checked the blockchain and then you randomly picked one and told us to restore that one. I ran a random generator on my laptop that I trusted and I picked one of the cold storage addresses that you had presented at Valid and I said, move it, make a transaction and move the money. You couldn't know which one I was going to pick and it was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. Moving that much money in one go is pretty scary. No one had done that. I think that single address had something like $3 million in it, which even for Coinbase at the time was a lot of money. And luckily you picked the address that we actually had control. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Luck of the draw. I couldn't really call it an audit. So I invented this other term, which was I did a spot check. An audit involves looking at assets and liabilities, but it was just a quick spot check to make sure that it wasn't all smoke and mirrors. It felt like a good moment for our industry. It was. And also reminded me of the Roger Veer video where he's saying, everything's good at Mt. Gox. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It felt like he was reading from a script. That was very much front of mind for me because I took my entire reputation and put it on the table. And I was terrified at the time. And I was terrified that I'd do it wrong or that I'd miss something. It felt like a huge responsibility, particularly because I had in mind what Roger had just done. But keep in mind also, Roger was the primary investor of my employer, Blockchain Info at the time. It was all very risky, but glad I did it. 
We should clarify for people who weren't around quite back in those early days. I guess that would have been 2014. I think it was early 2014. So in early 2014, as the fear was swelling around Mt. Gox and concerns about its liquidity and whether it was insolvent, Roger Veer, at the time known as Bitcoin Jesus, who has since gone on to focus most of his time on the Bitcoin Cash types of chains, made a video that was similar in intent to what you were trying to accomplish, Andreas. But as we see quickly after that, it blew up in his face very quickly and was indeed a big hit to his reputation. I think it was a very brave thing to do at the time. Were you confident when you were doing it that it was something that you actually could have certainty about, given the sort of cursory nature of any of these types of things that you could do? Or was it just like a somebody needs to step forward and point out good actors? First of all, I had quite a few years of experience doing security audits, like actual formal security audits of banks, policy audits, vulnerability tests, and things like that. I knew how to follow a process that would ensure that I wouldn't easily be hoodwinked. And I went in there, I wouldn't say hostile, but I was cold and standoffish and very, very focused on getting this done right. You weren't very friendly. No, I wasn't, (laughs) because I felt I had a responsibility to the process itself and to do it right, even though everybody in the room was a friend. That's just one of the little episodes of the early days. Fortunately, we don't have to do much of that anymore. Now we can just ensure all of the exchanges are insolvent. You were actually quite afraid that this will actually kill Bitcoin. I think I didn't feel like it was going to affect Bitcoin much at all. I don't remember what Brian and Fred felt, but from my point of view, it was just one exchange. It didn't really affect the Bitcoin protocol. And I felt that this is just one of many that's going to happen. So it was big, for sure. It was the one time and the last time that I was seriously worried that this might be a near-fatal hit to Bitcoin. And then I learned to have more faith. I felt it was going to slow down Bitcoin, for sure, but it wasn't going to kill it. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you in part by eToro. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with low spreads, no commission, and no hidden fees. eToro has spent more than 10 years making sophisticated trading features simple to use on any device with their intuitive app. If you're not ready to trade yet, practice building your portfolio with the eToro virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 12 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. Create an account today at eToro.ltbshow.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot L-T-B show dot com. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here for another Sponsored Minute with Paul from Edge.app, a non-custodial exchange to buy, sell, and trade crypto. Hey, Paul. Hey, Adam. Happy to announce today that we have launched integration with another partner, MoonPay. They're allowing people all throughout Europe and the UK to buy crypto with a credit card, and more importantly, with Apple Pay, which is actually the first of its kind, an integration with a non-custodial solution, making it really easy for people to purchase half a dozen different cryptos at you know, a couple of taps of the button on their iPhone device. Really excited to get this out there. To get your hands on one of the most powerful yet user-friendly crypto apps out there, stop by edge.app today. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Adam. We've got three BIPs bundled together, Schnorr, TapScript and Taproot that are going through review now. They're probably going to be ready in the next six months to a year. Is this another situation where you think 
Litecoin might move at the same time or even before Bitcoin to implement these? I think the Schnorr and Taproot's BIPs are pretty amazing and happy to see them getting completed and implemented and ready to activate. Litecoin, we're definitely going to merge that in as soon as we can. And we'll see if this activation on Litecoin happens faster than Bitcoin. I don't think that there's going to be that much controversy around these features for Bitcoin, but obviously I don't know. But I have a feeling the community is excited about it and the miners will pretty quickly activate it and start forked into Bitcoin and also Litecoin. But if there's any issue with it being activated in Bitcoin, Litecoin potentially could step up and do it first. But I guess we'll see. I don't think we're ever doing a miner activation again. Not in Bitcoin. This is pure speculation, of course. I have no evidence to it. But I think we're more likely to go for a flag day soft fork, anybody who wants to upgrade your software, and not ask the miners or not put it to a vote the way BIP9 did. Yeah, so BIP9 was that. And I don't know if you're familiar with BIP8, which is basically something similar, but with a flag date. Right. It's let us know by then, but even if you don't, we're going for it. So this is actually what we're planning to do with the Mimblewimble extension block proposal using BIP8. If miners are ready, it can activate sooner. But if they're not, it's going to activate like maybe a year down the line. Something like that will probably work better. So miners don't feel like this is them voting on something. It's just more about whether or not they're ready for the new upgrade and when they're ready. I've heard that there are talks of introducing Mimblewimble as some kind of extension block or sidechain or something like that to Litecoin, which I think is a superb way to test Mimblewimble under real game theoretical adversarial conditions. And I'd like to hear more about that. This is something that I'm very passionate about, which is to add more fungibility to Litecoin and also maybe help out with Bitcoin also. Mimblewimble is a technology we're currently looking at, which has confidential transactions. So the amounts you're sending is hidden. I think this is really important. Right now, when you're getting paid in Litecoin, if you send that output to buy coffee, then the receiver can easily figure out how much money you have, which is really bad for financial privacy. So I think something like confidential transaction will help that a lot. The way we're looking at it is to deploy Mimblewimble as an extension block. I see it as like a side chain that's permanently attached to the main chain. So miners will mine both the main block and the extension block together, and they will just add on top of each other. So the extension block will just run alongside the main chain. And then you can move Litecoins from the main chain to the extension block and vice versa by pegging in and pegging out. So one Litecoin on the main chain is equal to one Litecoin on the extension block. But once you're in the extension blocks, you use Mimblewimble protocol for moving money around. So it's confidential transaction, and Mimblewimble scales really well. That's one of the benefits of doing that. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how people will use it. Fungibility on the base layer of Bitcoin is both something that for many of us is of enormous importance, but it's also something that is incredibly controversial. A lot of speculation around the idea that if a fungibility fix or strong anonymity change is made to the Bitcoin base layer, it's going to result in Bitcoin being delisted or blacklisted or removed from exchanges all around the world because most of them cannot handle that kind of anonymity on their platforms. In fact, under FATFA in many European countries and other places, they can't under the law. That's one of the controversies that's arisen. Do you think that Litecoin gets to test the political 
consequences of adding strong anonymity and fungibility on the base layer as well as the technical aspects? Yes, I definitely do think that this is going to be testing that. One difference with extension blocks is it's kind of not the base layer. You can think of the main chain being the base layer and the extension block is very similar to a side chain in a lot of aspects. So it's an optional thing, meaning that if people choose not to use that, then they're still getting unshielded, unfungible transactions. They only get to use the anonymity layer if they choose to. Yeah, it's an opt-in layer. It's kind of similar to Liquid today. Liquid is a sidechain. It's federated, but you can choose to use it. If you move your Bitcoin to Liquid, you can do more private anonymous transactions because Liquid has confidential transactions. And then after that, you can move it back to the main chain. So exchanges don't have to support Liquid um, if they don't want to, and it doesn't really affect the fungibility to privacy on the main chain. For Litecoin, when we launched this, I don't see many exchanges actually supporting the Mimbo-Wimbo side of things. It's a soft fork, so they don't have to. So they'll keep supporting the main chain, and I think everything is status quo. I've actually talked to quite a few major exchanges about this, and they all seem to think that this won't really affect them that much, and it's not really a big risk of delisting. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if you were to have a bunch of Litecoin that you have that is not particularly private, that has been attached through prior contact with an identifier environment, and so it's tainted, not tainted with illegal activities, tainted with surveillance oversight, you then take that and move it into the sidechain, and then later on, in a very different way, move it out of the sidechain and back into Litecoin, it creates a fairly unbreakable barrier between the identifiable outputs and the outputs that you bring back into the chain, which don't have any connection to any identity. They just popped out of the sidechain and you can't really trace where they came from. Mimbo-Wimbo is not perfect privacy. It helps a bit, but if you really want the best privacy, you would do something like CoinJoin in addition to Mimbo-Wimbo, where you'll mix some coins and you really can't track where the coins came from. But I think the goal for us is more about financial privacy, just enough. It's not just for so you can hide your drug purchases, for example. It's more about just being able to be more private about how much money you own, for example. Or save money to escape an abusive spouse. That's one of my favorite use cases for privacy. Or maybe hide your train ticket purchases if you happen to be in Hong Kong and attending a protest. Privacy isn't just for criminals. It's also against criminal governments. Or something not illegal at all. I'm aware of a number of anti-war activists that are bipartisan who explicitly say the inability to receive high-value persons' donations without them being on some kind of list materially restricts their ability to raise funds to just engage in anti-war demonstrations. We already covered that one, Jonathan, under resisting criminal governments. (laughs) I mean, in the end, what we're building is censorship-resistant money. Right. As they say, it's not just freedom of speech before you speak, but it's also remaining free after you speak. Are you sick of creepy ads following you across the internet? Then check out Brave. Brave is a free next-generation web browser that's pioneering a better internet with privacy by default. Using Brave browser feels a lot like using Chrome, except without any of the annoying ads or creepy behavioral tracking. You can import your bookmarks with one click and continue to use all of your favorite Chrome extensions. 
it's blazing fast, performs up to six times faster than competitors, and it gives you the option to opt in to earn rewards by viewing ads, which you can then use to support your favorite content creators. It's so easy to make the switch. Go to brave.com slash LTB and switch to Brave today. You can feel good about using Brave, knowing that you're helping to restore your privacy and fix the internet. That's brave.com slash LTB. Brave.com slash LTB and switch today. Something we don't really talk about in Bitcoin, or at least I don't think many of the core developers want to put any timelines anymore because prior attempts have been very bitter. I don't like to promise times when you don't make it, people get upset, which is kind of silly because we're doing our best and we're not being paid to work on Litecoin. So people who invest in Litecoin feel like they deserve their old something, which is kind of ridiculous. Our plan right now is we start to implement it. We hired the developer of Grin++, David Burkett, who's going to be leading this project. He's spending half his time on Grin++ and half his time on Litecoin stuff. And I think it's a good synergy. So the plan right now is to try to get this implemented in the next six months, tested well and everything. Once it's implemented, we'll get it out there and it could potentially take a year to activate. It's going to take some time, but we're going to be working on it carefully. This is going to be a big change. We don't want to screw something up. In the end, Litecoin is still a $3 billion cryptocurrency. It's not nothing. So Charlie, one of the things we were doing in anticipation of the show was thinking through parts of the history of this ecosystem where Litecoin played a pivotal role. The funny thing about what happened in 2017 was there was this ecosystem of all of these alternative cryptocurrency projects. And the only way to get into them was with Ether. So you had a bunch of Bitcoin people buying Ether to then get into all these other blockchain projects. And it really reminded me of 2014, the summer of all the script coins that were merged bind with Litecoin. And if you wanted access to any of them as a Bitcoiner, you'd have to buy Litecoin because the only pairs were for Litecoin. And so at an exchange level, I thought it was really interesting that there was this moment in 2014, 2015, where Litecoin was this amazing bridge to which you would have access to everything that wasn't Bitcoin as a Bitcoiner. So I can say, sadly, that the only Litecoin ever purchased, I purchased to buy an altcoin. It was all on uh, Cripsy. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought it was super interesting, that idea that there's always going to be this anchor that serves as the bridge from Bitcoin to all of these tertiary projects and things that are occurring. And that Litecoin was really that first staple that enabled that. It was just a really interesting thing. And the funny other way to think about Litecoin, and I don't mean this as an insult, which is a great way to preamble a statement, which is sort of a proto-tether in terms of value proposition. Because people forget. They're like, why did we need a second pair? I don't get it. This makes no sense. Well, if you had no banking support, you don't have an exchange where the pair is the pair against itself. Because one Bitcoin is always one Bitcoin. This was actually something that was pretty big back then, where it's hard to move fiat around. So people were arbitraging with Litecoin quite a bit, where you just trade Bitcoin with Litecoin and then just move Litecoin. Litecoin is pretty fast. You move it between exchanges and it actually worked really well for arbitrage. If you could speak more to that history and that understanding, and it's sort of funny that Tether's really taken over and it has its own problems in and of itself. But this idea of an exchange being unbanked and needing a method to continue and engage in is probably the most pivotal and critical thing that Litecoin did as a service to Bitcoin, outside of all of the amazing continued work you're doing now. Yeah, so one thing with Litecoin is that it's much faster. Faster in the sense that it has shorter confirmation times. 
a lot of times exchanges moving money with Litecoin is a lot faster. And also because a lot of times the Bitcoin network is congested, the fees are higher. Litecoin is very efficient in terms of speed and also fees for moving money around. In the end, this is why Bitcoin and Litecoin exist. It's about moving value. Moving value from one person to another, from one exchange to another exchange. Litecoin really did a good job at that. It was really well suited for moving value. I always thought it was interesting. If Litecoin had no value, the market would say it has no value. The price would be zero, but that's not been the case. So obviously people find it useful. Every day, right, someone's saying, oh, Litecoin's dead for eight years. Similar for Bitcoin. People have been calling Bitcoin being dead for so long. But it's still functioning. The amazing thing is Litecoin's uptime, it hasn't been down since it started. There's been no downtime. It's been working flawlessly for eight plus years, and it will continue to work for another hundreds of years. I think an even greater testament to Litecoin's uptime is before USF activation, someone asked me if Bitcoin could ever have downtime. And I said, no, although technically there's a scenario in which it could have double uptime. (laughs) So I think that the problem in this space isn't downtime, but redundant uptime. And I think Bitcoin's 500% uptime. There's a testament to Litecoin in that it has 99.99% uptime and not 400% uptime. Another amazing thing about Litecoin is that it has its own set of miners. The miners aren't competing with Bitcoin. It has its own ASICs and 97% of script ASICs are all pointed at Litecoin. It has a robust ecosystem. It's secure. It's really hard to attack. And it just works. Do you think that the contentiousness of Bitcoin's consensus ability is in and of itself a way that Litecoin differentiates itself? And as we look at the next 20, 50 years of how Litecoin is distinct from Bitcoin, Maybe that in and of itself, if all other things are the same, could be a defining characteristic that means that it can do things that are different. I think the contentiousness of Bitcoin changing is actually a good thing. You don't want your base protocol, something that has a lot of value, to constantly be changing and testing new things. Bitcoin being conservative is actually good. But with respect to the community that you helped inculcate, When Bitcoin was at a $3 billion market cap, it was still more contentious than Litecoin is now. (laughs) Yeah. And I think the main reason is because of me, because I'm still around and I'm still helping move Litecoin forward. That's good and bad. The bad part is it's more centralized and I become a target of attack. For example, if a government wants to co-op Litecoin, they could attack me. They could put me in jail or do something against me to try to change Litecoin. Whereas with Bitcoin, they can't really do that because they can't find Satoshi. But the good thing is that the community is more cohesive, it's more integrated, and there's less contention about stuff. For sure, there still is, but much less than Bitcoin. One of the biggest challenges in cryptocurrency, regardless of the cryptocurrency that you're talking about, is accessibility to it from the outside world. Historically, almost all the friction has been moving from the digital dollar into the cryptocurrency equivalent or some other type of token. This has been tried a lot of different ways. And recently, we've seen at least one bank, and I've heard rumors of another bank, that have been purchased or have been started with the idea of specifically providing that sort of access in a way that it isn't available because the banking system is pretty resistant to it. In 2018, the Litecoin Foundation came to possession of nearly 10% equity in a smaller German bank called WEG Bank. I'd love to hear the story around what that was all about what challenges you were trying to tackle there in accessibility, I assume. And I haven't actually heard anything since that announcement, and I'd love to hear how it went. You all hear stories about how people are having trouble opening bank accounts. 
the idea of us owning a small part of a bank was that we can attack this from a different angle, try to get a bank to support crypto internally, maybe potentially even having crypto accounts for people. So we got a small stake in the German bank, WEG Bank, and it's tough. The banking industry is extremely conservative. So it's actually tough for them to work on crypto-related product and for the regulators to be okay with that. Progress is slow, but they're starting to work with crypto companies in supporting cryptocurrencies. And they're also working on a payment processor product where they can help accept Bitcoin, Litecoin, other currencies and convert it to the fiat currencies. So the goal there is to be that bridge from the traditional world of banking to the new world of this technology. So that's the goal and everything is still progressing. It's just taking a long time because there's a lot of conservatism. There's a lot of reticence to take on these things because nobody really knows what the repercussions are to the broader system. It's going to take some time for the legacy banking system to be comfortable with crypto, but they're going to be dragged along because crypto is the future. I would have to think the most surreal aspect of owning as a part of a group 10% of a bank is that moment where you have a board meeting and your fiduciary obligation is to close your own bank account. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. A big thanks to our sponsors, Edge.app, Brave.com, and eToro.com. Today's discussion featured Charlie Lee, Adam B. Levine, Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and Jonathan Mohan. This episode was edited by Jonas, with music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email adam at ltbshow.com.